Good morning, everybody. Really good to see you all here today. And good to be gathered together to worship God. I couldn't help but think as we were singing, every week, the songs that we sing are our sermons. Um, they teach us, they encourage us, they provoke us, they move us to be more faithful to God. And uh, I was thinking about this morning, the song we sang, Jesus Draw Us Ever Near, the last line of that song, with your likeness, let me wake. What a what a concept. Um, really, everything we do as disciples is about that. Our aim is to be like Jesus, to become like Jesus. And I think that's really especially important to keep in mind um, when we look at what I will call hard teachings of Jesus. Uh, last week, um, I didn't get to be here for all of it, um, but I, I was told afterwards by uh, one of the sisters, graciously said to me, that was a really hard teaching. Um, and uh, I think the same thing uh, would go for today. Today, I want to talk to you about uh, the subject of forgiveness. And uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 18 with the with the story that was just read. Um, but this is another one of those hard teachings uh, of Jesus. And it wasn't just hard for us in, in our culture. It was hard for, for Jesus's earliest disciples. I mean, consider the fact that Peter is coming to Jesus with this question, how many times shall I forgive? And I, I think it's probably safe to assume that what provoked that question was the fact that Peter had heard Jesus, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, teach his disciples that if we do not forgive our debtors, God will not forgive our debts. And Peter, upon hearing things like that, I think is probably thinking, you know, we might want to put a cap on that. You know, we might want to put a limit on that. You know, that if you just let this go on, if you let people just keep on sinning against you, you know, it, it, what what could happen um, if people are allowed to just go on without any accountability for the evils that they commit? Think about the consequences that could come. It's interesting. The, the Jews debated this. Uh, rabbis, uh, actually, in the Talmud, if you read in the Talmud, uh, they, they taught that the Israelites were required to forgive an offense uh, three times, three times. So if it happens once, you must forgive them. If it happens twice, you must forgive them. If it happens three times, not three strikes you're out, you must forgive them again. But upon the fourth, now it's a habitual thing. You don't have to keep forgiving them. And so this was a debate among the people. And I think Peter here is concerned about Jesus' teaching. What are you saying here? And what could be the consequences of a teaching like this? And so to answer that question, how many times shall I forgive? Jesus says uh, up to 70 times seven or 77, depending on how your translation says there. Uh, and I think the point that Jesus is making here is at some point you have to stop counting. And you just have to forgive. It's not about putting a cap on this is how many times uh, you, you have to do it. But uh, up until 70 times seven, meaning until you can't count it any longer, you keep on forgiving. And in order to impress this truth upon the heart of Peter and upon the heart of disciples from for 2000 years since, he tells this parable. A parable about a king who, while settling accounts with all of his debtors and all of his servants, finds out about a man who owes him 10,000 talents. 
Now, I'm no scholar, and I don't claim to be, but scholars have said about this that if we were to put this into modern equivalents here, we're talking about millions or billions of dollars here. That's what's owed. This king is owed millions or billions of dollars by this servant. I don't even know how you rack up a debt like that. How do you get a debt uh, of 10,000 talents? You have to work hard to not pay back in order to do that. You have to borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow again. And so the king did what any just king would do. The king said, well, since you haven't paid back and since you can't pay back, um, he commanded that he sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and, and repayment to be made. And when the slave finds out that he's going to be sold, that there's the mercy has run out, the patience has run out, that now the time has come for collection and he has nothing to offer. The slave falls on the ground and prostrates himself before the king. And he says, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And that's a lie. He couldn't repay him everything if he lived until the end of time. This man was in deep, deep debt. He's not going to pay him back. How could you pay back 10,000 times? There's no hope to pay this back. But the slave fell to the ground and begged for patience and promised to repay everything. And when the slave cried for mercy, the Lord of the slave had compassion. He felt compassion. And he released him and forgave him the debt. And don't you wish the story ended there? Um, that's a really beautiful story. Um, but reality isn't always as beautiful as we'd like it to be. And so the story goes on. The man goes out feeling uh, surely on, a, on cloud nine, feeling a high coming off this forgiveness. I mean, imagine the weight that this man had been carrying for so long to have that forgiven, to have that removed, to be released with no strings attached, no years of service, no, um, if you do this and you do this and you do this and then you do this, then it'll be forgiven. No, it is completely erased. The debt is removed. And so the slave goes out and he finds another man crosses paths with, I don't know, um, maybe he intended, maybe he went looking for him. Maybe not, maybe he just found him. But he found his man who owed him a hundred denarii. By the way, that's a substantial sum of money. A hundred days wages is not like, you know, chump change here. We're not talking about a few pennies. Like we're talking about some money here. But a far less consequential debt than the one that he had just been forgiven for. But when he saw his slave, the one who owed him a hundred denarii, he seized him. And not only did he seize him, he didn't say, hey, let me take you to the law court. And we're going to sort this out. No, he began to choke him. He felt that this man was so uh, worthless in his eyes that he begins to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And the fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. And again, this is one of those moments, isn't it, in which you're seeing um, mercy from God? Shouldn't that look familiar to you? As you see this man laying down prostrate, begging for mercy. Shouldn't that remind you of something? But not the man. The man began to choke him. The man fell down and pled with him and said, have patience with me. But he was unwilling and he threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. What would you do if you saw this scene? Thankfully, 
the fellow slaves who were around for this had some sense of justice, some sense of righteousness. And so they went back to the king and told the king about what's going on here. They told the king about this man who had gone out after being, being forgiven this astronomical debt that he could never repay. And how he found one of his slaves who owed him just a little bit. A large sum, but a little bit in comparison. And what he had done to him. And so the king summoned him and said, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the answer to Peter's question is given. If you want the master to have mercy on you and to forgive you, then you also need to extend that same mercy and to forgive others. Jesus said in verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is a radical teaching. This is a radical parable and an increasingly unpopular teaching uh, in our culture and in our society today. Uh, I want to think with you for a moment about why is forgiveness so controversial? in our culture today. Um, it certainly has become a topic of conversation over the past five or 10 years, especially there are lots of debates about uh, surrounding forgiveness, whether it should be often offered, when it should be offered, how it should be offered, what strength should be attached if it's offered. Um, lots of things in our society and in our culture have brought this to the forefront uh, of our nation's consciousness. And I wanna suggest a couple of things that have affected um, maybe some of the controversy surrounding forgiveness. The first one is this. Um, increasingly, we've moved towards an individualized culture uh, where with an idolization of self. And, and, and what I mean by that is our culture is obsessed with self. So the focus is always about, uh, primarily about, giving each person what seems most fulfilling in the moment, what is most satisfactory, um, to insist is that someone who's been hurt, especially somebody who's been hurt badly in certain kinds of ways in our culture, that that person should then bear the cost of forgiveness just seems to our culture to be at least lacking compassion, if not just completely unloving uh, entirely. In a culture that idolizes self-gratification, the central focus is the desires of, of self. And so it seems harsh to insist that the self should do something that's painful or something that the self doesn't desire to do. No, you should do what makes you happy, what makes you feel good, what, what you desire in the moment. I think that's affected kind of this controversy over forgiveness. Let me suggest another thing, though, that it has really uh, we've really been grappling with in our nation. And that is the, the, uh, the impact of forgiveness on justice and righteousness. In fact, there's a common prevalent thought in our society, in our culture, that if you forgive people for things that they've done wrong, then you are opening a door for them to keep perpetrating the same crimes over and over and over again. That forgiveness just opens the door for injustice and evil and oppression to continue in the world around us. And in fact, the world is grappling with how do we handle forgiveness? How, how do we deal with it? Um, how do we... Um, how do we deal with the evils that are happening to us? And there's some different 
ways in which society is, is suggesting to handle this. And probably many of these we've wrestled with ourselves. Um, let me give you a, a couple, and these are not original with me, but one uh, we'll call non-conditional forgiveness, non-conditional forgiveness. And the idea uh, of non-conditional forgiveness uh, is that uh, you focus on appeasing the anger of the mistreated. In fact, this is, I think, one of the reasons why forgiveness as the Christian uh, as the Christian teaching is explained, gets a bad rap is because sometimes the view is that 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 forgiveness comes without conditions. Forgive and forget uh, is the idea, and nothing ends up getting done to stop the behavior. Think about how often in churches we hear about um, this concept of forgiveness being used against victims of abuse and injustice. And so what ends up happening is just when somebody uh, gets abused or mistreated uh, or, 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 or suffers some sort of injustice, you're just supposed to forgive and forget. And therefore, therefore, the, uh, the evil and the injustice never gets addressed. Forgiveness without conditions can allow the relationship between abusers and uh, and the abuse to continue. And by the way, that's why God put in order um, things in the church to hold people accountable lovingly and graciously to discipline one another for the safety of every member. That's also why God has put authorities over us. That's why we are given governing authorities who are supposed to enact justice, to, to deal with wrongdoers and evils. But this idea uh, of non-conditional forgiveness, uh, I think is, is, is a common idea, a common teaching today. Uh, another, um, I guess, alternative to that that's been proposed is what some have called non or tra transactional, not non transactional forgiveness. Um, and the idea behind transactional forgiveness is um, that basically I will forgive you when you merit it. That is when you deserve it, when you do enough to make it right, then I will extend forgiveness. Forgiveness is not granted immediately. It's not granted quickly. You've got to, you've got to prove it. Like you got to prove that you really have earned it, that you really deserve this. After you weep long enough, you implore hard enough, you apologize uh, again and again and again, then maybe I will consider it. But let me suggest that this is really just another way of, in my pride, trying to exercise power over somebody who's hurt me. Um, it's a way of me uh, trying to ensure that, that I get control, that I can look down on this person. I can ensure that this person is lower than me. This person gets uh, punished and, 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 and suffers because of their sin. The, maybe the more popular option coming out in the, in the culture today is many are suggesting that really we just shouldn't be forgiving at all. Um, we're not just non-conditional forgiveness. We're not doing transactional forgiveness. Just no forgiveness at all. In fact, some have argued that forgiveness ends up victimizing people who are oppressed. Women and minorities especially are pressed to refuse forgiveness in our nation today um, because the, the, the argument seems to go something like this, that since these groups have historically been given little advantage or opportunity, refusing to offer forgiveness is a way of ensuring others don't maintain power over you. That is, you can hold out your power and your strength and your dignity by refusing forgiveness and put people in their place. Others argue that forgiveness is inherently opposed to the pursuit of justice. And uh, so forgiveness is what allows people to continue to perpetrate their wrongdoings. Uh, th this came to light very recently, um, a few years back, um, 
in the trial of Amber Geiger. Do you guys remember this? Um, it was a white Dallas police officer um, who killed Botham John, who was a black Christian um, from the island of St. Lucia after entering the wrong apartment. Uh, and as he came to the door, she shot him and killed him. And the nations and even the world was in shock when during that trial, um, Botham's brother said that he forgave her and asked the judge for permission to come off of the stage after saying that he loved her and asked to give her a hug. And there was lots of controversy over that. Some who were lauding him, look at this amazing act uh, of love and forgiveness, and others who were critical saying that this would hinder justice from being enacted in the courtroom. It got worse for many when the judge graciously handed her a Bible uh, and gave her a Bible. What about that? What are we to do with all of this, the mess in this world? What about justice and restitution? Does forgiveness just permit perpetual injustices and evils in our society to continue? Let me suggest the Bible answer that is no. In fact, forgiveness does not stop the pursuit of justice at all. Forgiveness is rooted in Jesus' teaching, love your neighbor as yourself. The pursuit of justice is also rooted in Jesus' teaching, love your neighbor as yourself. And rather than seeking the perpetrator's pain, when we become, when we come to Christ, we no longer seek their pain, but rather their good out of love. As difficult as that is, Jesus teaches us to love even our enemies. But that same love is the root that leads us to pursue justice. Injustice and evil perpetuated not only grieves God, but it also harms those who are made in the image of God. And so the same love that leads, that moves us towards forgiveness is also the same love that moves us towards justice. In fact, that's important, not just for the people who are harmed, but also for the one who's doing the harming. Not loving to allow people to continue to do evil and do nothing to stop it. It's not loving to allow people to, to let abuse and injustice persist unaddressed. And so the Bible actually does help us here. The same love that moves us towards forgiveness moves us towards justice. Let me suggest also, though, that actually biblically forgiveness inspires transformation and inspires restitution. It is a part of the process through which God brings about justice. Think about this. The greatest example of this in the, in, in, in the New Testament is the story of Paul. I mean, think about Saul. As they're stoning Stephen, he's holding their coats. He's joining in the, the onslaught against this godly man who had done nothing wrong. And as he looks on, he sees this man shout, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as he dies. And consider the impact that that would have had after that road to Damascus event. Consider the, the impact that would have had on Saul as he remembered this man following in the example of Jesus and remembering how Stephen had offered and prayed that God would forgive him and all the people with him as he stood there holding the coats while they stoned him to death. It's the example of Stephen lived out 
living out the example of Jesus, letting the likeness of Jesus wake in his life. It's the example of Stephen that inspired Paul, um, or should I say Saul, to become Paul, a completely new man. It was the touch of forgiveness that, it, that moved him, though he said, I was the foremost of all sinners, that now I labor more than them all. Why did he change? Well, it was because of forgiveness that was offered to him. And truthfully, this has been true not only just in the lives of individuals, it's been true in societies. You can just look at history. Um, you guys know I, I'm deeply interested in history. You can look at societies and cultures and nations and nations that refuse forgiveness, struggle, because there's injustice and there's evil and there's resentment and there's bitterness. And, and it often gets perpetuated more and more and more. Let me suggest that forgiveness is the only thing that can stop the cycle of evil and injustice continuing. Otherwise, we just get stuck in this vicious cycle uh, of attacking and then vengeance and then attacking and vengeance and vengeance and vengeance over and over and over again. Forgiveness inspires transformation. The Bible offers us even more. And that is that ultimately, even though in this world and in this nation, there are often going to be times in which injustices persist for some time. There are often going to be evils that go unaddressed. There's oppression that slips under the, under the, the rug and people don't see it or they don't deal with it. And even when it's brought to light sometimes, justice is not enacted. But we know that justice is coming. We worship a God of perfect justice who sees all and knows all and, 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 and will one day judge everyone for the deeds that they have done. Justice is coming fully in the end. And all of these things help us as we wrestle with these challenges in our society as it relates to forgiveness. But I want to talk for a few minutes about why forgiveness matters. Why is it so important that we learn? Why does the Bible stress so much this idea of forgiveness? Why does Jesus demand it from his disciples? Why would he say things like, if you don't forgive other sins, your father would not uh, forgive your sins? And let, let me just suggest this. First of all, the Bible stresses forgiveness because it's our greatest need. Without forgiveness, there is no hope for us. And this is actually the, the reason for that story, that really strange story where the four guys are, bringing this paralyzed guy to Jesus and they go all this work, they tear the roof off, they lower him down in the house and, and, he, and, he, and, and he gets there and you can imagine the, the shock on their faces when Jesus says to the man, hey, your sins are forgiven. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if I'm one of the guys carrying him there, like, okay, that's great, but uh, it's not what we came here for. What about his legs? The guy's still laying on the bed. What is Jesus saying to them? What is Jesus saying to that man? You know what? Jesus could have just said, get up and walk. But Jesus knew that there was something this man needed more than legs. He needed forgiveness. He needed the healing that only God could provide of a restored and reconciled relationship with him. You could walk out of here healed with your legs healed and you could walk for days and years. But you know what? Eventually those legs are going to deteriorate one day. And eventually you're going to go right back. Sometimes we're tempted to think that about God. We're tempted to think, hey, if I only had this, if God only gave me this wish, everything would be okay. And truthfully, it's not that way. If God gave us everything we wish for, we wouldn't be any better off unless the things we wish for are healing and reconciliation with heaven. 
Forgiveness was his greatest need. And I want to tell you today, you may be thinking, no, I need this. I need that. I got this. I got I got I got a long list of other things on, on my on my plate right now that I need God to get come through for me. And I need God to give me this and I need God to do this for me. But truthfully, there is no greater need than that of forgiveness, because forgiveness is necessary for us to have a relationship with God. There's nothing in the world more important than that. Let me suggest this also. Forgiveness is, is not just our greatest need to receive it, but also to extend it. Forgiveness, we need to extend forgiveness. And the Bible stresses the, the benefits of forgiveness. Um, for example, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 stresses this idea that unforgiveness can poison your soul. Uh, listen to this. The Hebrew writer says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Have you ever experienced this before? You're angry about something. Somebody's hurt you. Somebody's done evil to you. And I want to I want to just pause here and say some of you guys have experienced greater evils than anything I could imagine. Do you know what happens sometimes when you face things like that? There's like this poison pill in you, this bitterness, this root of bitterness that can be stirred up. And it can poison your soul. When we refuse to forgive, we remain imprisoned by the pain, resentment, bitterness, and anger that we feel. And in a way, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, we give the devil an opportunity to get a foothold in our hearts and to trap us in a deeper snare. It was about three years ago that I met on, uh, we were doing a Bible study in Bed-Stuy over here, and uh, we met Marie Claudine. Um, she's from Rwanda. She grew up in Rwanda in the early 90s. In 1994, her family was slaughtered, um, all of them chopped up with machetes. She was crawling away, hiding in the tall grass, praying that God would spare her life as she saw her family being killed. I asked her a lot of questions, um, but especially I wanted to know, like, how do you get to a place today where you have such peace? How could you be so at rest? And she began to talk about why she forgave the ones who killed her family in the Rwanda genocide in 1994. And this is what she said. She said, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in horrible prison of bitterness and anger. That was going to be another life nightmare. Besides of that, I wanted to be free. Because let's face it, when somebody kills your loved one, take example, my family. If I don't forgive, that means, that means I will carry those killers in my heart and allow the anger, sorrow, and pain they cause my life to oppress me and squeeze my life to the point my life becomes small. Getting depression stress, chronic illness, hating everybody, those I know, even those I don't, hating life, and so on. She went on to say, the power of forgiveness helped me to step out of that horribly, horrible, violently 
mindset cycle of evil. And to influence then today, I can say helping others, especially Rwandan orphans, made my life more meaningful and powerful. You see what she's saying? She was caught in a prison. It's not just the prison of what was done to her, but it's also the root of bitterness that was springing up within her. And so she said, in order to escape that, I had to learn forgiveness. I want to tell you this. If you don't learn to forgive, your soul will begin to rot with unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment in your heart. It will take you to places you never thought you'd go and cost you far more than you ever thought you'd pay. Let me add, though, the Hebrew writer seems to be stressing this in Hebrews 12 and verse 15. Unforgiveness can not only poison our soul, but it also can poison the souls of others. Did you notice the end of that verse? Um, and I don't know that I understand fully all of what this means, but see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. By it, many become defiled. And isn't it true that when I become bitter, I know this from personal experience, I'm sure you do as well, that when I become bitter and resentful, it affects not just me. It affects everybody else around me. It affects the, the, the people who've done evil to me, but it also affects my wife and my children. It affects all the people that I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Unforgiveness can poison the souls of others. The goal of forgiveness, as the Bible stresses, is not primarily inner peace and healing. The world today, when it teaches to forgive, focuses primarily on that. You need to forgive for you, for your sake. Um, and by the way, the Bible stresses some of that as well. It is good for us to forgive. All of God's commandments are for our good. However, the biblical emphasis when it speaks about the goal of forgiveness, and we'll see this more in a minute, is not primarily my inner peace and healing, though forgiveness can bring that. Nor is it paying back the offender, though forgiveness can certainly play a role in justice. The goal of forgiveness is the restoration of community, the reconciliation of relationships. This is what God has been working for since sin entered the world, to bring about the reconciliation of relationships, the restoration of all humanity, first with God, but also with each other. And God is working in and through our forgiveness to restore community. Forgiveness is not about trying to humiliate or trying to shame or drive other people away, but it's rather the work that is done to correct and to restore the relationship so that reconciliation can take place. In the aftermath of uh, Brant John's act of forgiving Amber Geiger, uh, I wrote this, and many things I write do not age well, but I think this hopefully uh, has. Um, I said, to celebrate forgiveness is not to pretend that the world is fairer than it really is. We know that injustice and evil is rampant across this country. But to celebrate forgiveness is not to ignore systemic injustices that must be addressed. To celebrate forgiveness is not to claim that racism, prejudice, and profiling is part of our past and not a problem in our present. To celebrate forgiveness is not to look on idly while more, while more injustices and miscarriages of justice take place. 
To celebrate forgiveness is simply to honor someone who courageously and willingly took the first step in leading us toward healing and reconciliation. By not returning evil for evil and by blessing his enemy instead of cursing her. Of course, forgiveness is costly. Someone has to suffer in order for forgiveness to take place. But still, forgiveness is the only way for anyone to find healing and to be saved. The reason we call for forgiveness, and the reason we are called by God to forgive, is because this is how we extend God's love to the world around us. This is how we show that we really believe that God does not wish for others to perish, but for all to come to eternal life. And this is how we participate in that process of extending God's love and grace to the world around us by extending forgiveness. Marie Claudine continued uh, in some of the things she wrote to me. She said, I forgave because I saw that I am in a position to stop the circle of violence with my forgiveness ability. Seeking revenge was going to create another cycle of violence over and over again. And what she's acknowledging here is that she is part of something greater than herself, that she is not worshiping her own self and her own desires, but rather denying herself because the only way for her to find healing and reconciliation, not just for her, but also for her people, was for there to be forgiveness. And I want to suggest that today. Though the society may say otherwise, though our culture may say otherwise, though our own feelings and our own intuitions may often say otherwise. The only way to work towards healing, not just for us, but for others around us, is to obey Jesus' command to forgive as we have been forgiven. So with that being said, how do we do it? What does it forgiveness even look like? And that would be a long, long sermon, but I'm going to give you a few thoughts here uh, today before we wrap up. Luke chapter 17. Look at this. I want you to look at two passages. Uh, first, Luke chapter 17 and verse 3 and 4. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent. Forgive him. Seven times a day? Wild. <laughs> Jesus said some crazy things. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Why don't you think about that for a moment? All right, this is getting even harder. All right, not only if I've been hurt, do I have to forgive, but I also have to confront. I have to address the sin that's being done. Yes. Jesus says, to rebuke is to confront. This is not the forgive and forget model, which means I forgive, but I don't actually address what's going on. No, this is address the sin, confront it, and if they repent, forgive. And this text seems to indicate that in order for there to be forgiveness, there must be repentance. Um, more on that in a moment. Reading this has sparked the common idea among Christians that there's no forgiveness necessary until repentance and restoration, rest, restitution take place by the perpetrator. However, let me read you another passage in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25 and listen to what Jesus says. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything 
against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Notice Jesus' teaching here. First glance almost seems to contradict. If it's just there and you're in the middle of a prayer and you remember you have something against somebody, forgive them. In that moment, forgive them. If you have anything against anyone, it doesn't say, hey, if you have anything against anyone that they've already repented of, then forgive them. If you have anything against anyone, um, forgive them unless they don't repent. It doesn't say that. It says if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. And this seems to indicate that forgiveness can take place in your heart and be completed in a moment, even while praying alone without any conversation and confrontation. So what are we supposed to do with this? And how are we supposed to understand this? Well, let me suggest, and I want you to test this with what you see in Scripture. Let me suggest that there's at least two different senses in which the Bible speaks about forgiveness in the New Testament. Um, for example, in the first sense, like we see in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, forgiveness is, is tied to reconciliation. And in order to have reconciliation, it takes two to tango, right? Um, you, you have to have repentance. There, it's not just about a desire to forgive, but also the person has to be willing to repent in order for there to be any real restoration of the relationship. And let me just pause and say this here, that if we try to sweep deep hurts under the rug and we never address them and we leave them unaddressed and we act like things are okay. That is not biblical reconciliation and it doesn't solve anything. It only makes things worse. So forgiveness and reconciliation, forgiveness leads to reconciliation is what Jesus teaches here in Luke 17 verses three and four. But in Mark 11 and verse 25, I think this is an example in which of a second sense in which forgiveness is used. And I'm going to call this, for lack of a better term, maybe some of you have a better way of saying this, that this is forgiveness within the heart. Forgiveness within the heart. When Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But when Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, there was no repentance on the part of the wrongdoers. None of them had said, hey, Jesus, I'm really sorry for putting you up there. Or, or Stephen, I'm really sorry for throwing that rock at your head. And yet they cried out for forgiveness for them. And I think what we're seeing here, they didn't wait for repentance to take place. They chose to forgive. That is to release the debt they were owed and chose to bear the cost of forgiveness on themselves. Literally, Stephen bears the cost of forgiveness with stones being thrown at him. Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, bore our sins in his body. They chose to forgive. That is to release the debt that they were owed and to bear it themselves. And this did not bring immediate reconciliation, right? But it opened the door for reconciliation to take place to those who would eventually come to repentance. I say all that to say this. In some cases, we are able to confront those who have wronged us about their sin and to seek reconciliation. And let me suggest that in those cases, if we are able, this is what we should do. Luke 17, verses three and four. This is what Jesus teaches, and we need to obey that command. However, in some cases, we may be the one who is wronged, 
We're the one who did the wrong. And in that case, we should be the one running to them to forgive, not waiting for them to come to us, running to them and asking, pleading for forgiveness, seeking forgiveness. And in other cases, we may have a heart in which we have released the debt. We have said, I'm going to forgive them for that, even though there is no sign of repentance and reconciliation has not taken place. If, if, if the other person is not willing to repent, then there may be no reconciliation, but I can still open my heart to have forgiveness toward them and to seek that God would not punish them as they deserve to be punished. But where do you get the power to do something like that. Some of the things that injustices and evils and abuses that we experience in life, to say that I have to go to confront and then I have to also forgive, sounds like an impossible teaching. Sounds like a burden way too heavy to bear. But praise God that God never asks us to do anything that he does not first show us the way himself. Everything God asks you to do for others, he did first for you. He has already done it for you time and time again. You know, there's one part of the story in that parable that we started with in Matthew 18 that doesn't get a lot of attention in the parable that Jesus told. And that is like, hey, where did the king get the ability to forgive that astronomical debt. How could the king just wipe out an astronomical debt like that and the kingdom still survive, right? I mean, that's that's a major, major debt. How could that happen? And Jesus doesn't really go into the links that the king had to go to in order to be able to forgive that debt. I don't know why. He didn't go into that in the parable. But I wonder if it was because Jesus didn't want Peter to hear that. He wanted him to watch that and to see it for himself. Think about this. The cost of forgiving that servant was so high that the king had to become a servant. This is the part that doesn't get told in the parable. The king had to become a servant and not just to leave the palace and to live a life of luxury as a servant in the kingdom, but rather to suffer rejection, to suffer scorn, to suffer ridicule, and something even worse, execution at the hands of those who had sinned against him and those who were indebted to him. Crucifixion was the cost of forgiving that service. So servant, so that the price could be paid to offer forgiveness to the debtor. And I want you to think about this. What kind of human could respond to that kind of love and forgiveness with an unforgiving heart towards other people? Anybody who's experienced that kind of forgiveness of an astronomical debt ought to walk out of that and say every other debt that I have against anybody, it's canceled. Every one of them. What kind of a human could walk away with a heart of unforgiveness? And yet here we are. 
2,000 years later, still struggling with unforgiveness in our hearts. You may be here today and you may be saying, you know, I don't know. I'm just not so sure I can keep on forgiving. We've already passed 70 times 7. We've passed 500, 1,000. If you're married, probably you've had to learn to forgive more than 70 times 7 already. That's the way life goes in relationships under the sun. You may be thinking, hey, I know this person keeps saying they apologize, and I know they keep saying they're sorry, but when it happens seven times a day, I don't know that I can keep saying, okay, you're forgiven. I don't know that I can get rid of the resentment and the bitterness that's being stored up inside of my heart. The hard thing about forgiveness is it's not a one-time thing. You have to do it again and again and again. And I'm not just talking about when they sin again. Sometimes I can forgive for something that has really hurt me. And then the next day it comes back and the hurt is back. And I have to forgive it again and again and again. The same sin being forgiven over and over and over again. And I want to say this. If you're struggling with unforgiveness in your heart today, I want to give you a challenge. I'm going to ask you to do this this week. It's not going to be easy. But I want you first to think about this. What if God today was to put on display? We don't have PowerPoint up here, but let's just let's just imagine for a second that we did. What if God was to put on display for us all here today a lifelong sit, a list of all of your sins and transgressions? I don't know about you, but I'd be hiding under a table. Embarrassment. How shameful. How humiliating. I want you to think about how long that list of sins would be. If the Lord was to put it on display here, some of us have lived a while now, how long would that list of sins be? How many do you think would be on it? Less than 70 times? Less than 70 times 7? Some of us have committed more sins than that in a year or a week or a month. It'd be a long list. You want God to forgive your list? Here's the challenge. Go home and try to make a list of all the transgressions and all the sins that you've committed over the course of your life. Every one of them. And I'm just asking you to, to, to write down the ones that you remember. You need, to, you need to acknowledge the fact that there are many, many, many sins that you have committed that you have no memory of, that you don't even remember. But just write down all the sins that you remember. Put them on the list. And once you've done that, go to God in prayer and ask God to forgive you for those things and commit to God that all of those sins you're going to turn away from. You're not going to continue in them any longer. And then go, and this is the part that might get hard. Find a fire. All right? Find a fire pit here in New York or get out of, do it safely. Don't get in trouble. But take all of those that list of sins and throw it in the fire. And remember this, that scripture says, 
that if we repent of our sins, God will wipe them out. He will wash them all away, that he will not hold them against us, and that he will remember them no more, that he will receive us back wholeheartedly. And after you've taken some time to rejoice in that reality, to give thanks and praise to God, if you find that resentment and bitterness is still boiling up in your heart, then go back, take out another piece of paper, and write down all the list of sins that have taken place against you again and again and again by that person that's hurt you over and over and over again. And pray to God that he will give you the strength to obey his command to forgive and throw that list in the fire. And remember the scripture that love keeps no record of wrongs. May God help us to find comfort at the cross where Jesus prayed for us, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. May we find in him the peace that comes through forgiveness and the strength to be able to forgive others for all that they've done against us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father, please help us, oh God. Please help us to forgive. Please help us to learn to appreciate more the depth uh, of our own sin and what you've done and what it costs you to wipe it all away. I pray today that we'll be overwhelmed with gratitude, that we'll be overwhelmed with joy and peace and comfort through the Holy Spirit as we think about the salvation that you've given us through Jesus our Lord. And I pray, God, that we'll be empowered through the strength of your Spirit to live as lights in this world, to, to, to forgive in incredibly challenging ways, to confront sin and to address it when it comes up, to not allow evils and injustices and oppression and abuse to persist in our lives or in our families or in this church family. But I pray, oh God, also that you'll teach us to forgive as you have forgiven us, to love as you have loved us, so that one day, with your likeness, we will wake. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.